Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the break and for the chance to remember Christmas and the glory that was your Son incarnate and the joy that comes each year from spending time with our family and friends and enjoying the memory of that day, as well as thinking toward the day we'll see him in our our own flesh and face to face. And Lord, thank you for the chance to come back now with a refreshed new start to study and to do so at the beginning of a year in which we can recommit to some of those things we may have let slip in the days past and to refocus ourselves on what matters. Will you tell us in your word, Father, that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. So we'd spend time this evening investing in that thing that is eternal, your will, your revelation, your word, the truth concerning who you are and what we are to do in following you. And I thank you, Father, that you've given us this opportunity to study. Every time we meet with family or friends, Father, it's a reminder of how many people we may know who just don't have this opportunity or who don't value it the way we have come to understand its value. And we could be them, but for your grace. And we thank you, Lord, that you've seen fit to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and to give us an opportunity to gather in this way regularly and to to uh, reap the benefits that we do reap from being in your word. Some of which, Father, we, we see now in our everyday life, but much of which we won't see until we reach where you're going to bring us to in the kingdom. And only then will we understand the benefit we gain by being obedient in your word. And I thank you, Father, that you've given us this chance. And as I open up the book of Ezra, Father, and I endeavor to teach it according to your will, I pray you give me the strength and the wisdom the humility, the patience, and the endurance to do what you call me to do. And I pray, Father, that ears would be opened and eyes would be opened to what you have to bring through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you like history, especially Bible history. The United States has been a country for 238 years, and yet it was only about 85 years into our existence that we almost split into two nations. There was a time when the northern nation formed and the southern nation formed, right? The United States and the Confederate States and uh, threatened the very existence of what we now have as the United States. Today, fortunately, we're Texas and a bunch of other places that don't matter. And I draw your mind to that comparison because Israel, at least in that respect, shares a similar history with us. They were a United Kingdom for a relatively brief period of time, for about 112 years. And at the end of that 112 years, King Solomon died. And upon his death... God had declared that the kingdom of Israel would become divided because of Solomon's idolatry. And the ten tribes in the north split off under the leadership of Jeroboam. God himself appointed Jeroboam to be the king of the north in 1 Kings 11. And at that same time, a prophet came to Jeroboam and declared that God had given him the authority to rule over those ten tribes after Solomon's death, and that he would have that reign for as long as he obeyed the Lord. Meanwhile, in the south, in the southern kingdom, the remaining two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were ruled by one of Solomon's heirs, his son Rehoboam. And during the centuries that followed after that split, both the leadership of the north and the leadership of the south, generally speaking, went from bad to worse. The northern kingdom of Israel lasted for 209 years, After that split, and during that time, they set up their capital in Samaria and they established in that city a false temple, a false priesthood, 
and a distorted version of the law. In fact, they went into the books of Moses and they, or the book of Moses as, as they knew it, and they actually changed words in the text. Wherever it said Jerusalem, they scratched it out and wrote Samaria and things of that nature to try to recreate their own history. They were ruled by a succession of 18 kings, all of whom were considered to be bad in one way or another, disobedient, in other words, to the covenant. And they all followed after a long list of abominations. Eventually, in 722 B.C., God puts an end to the northern kingdom and scatters those ten tribes by the hand of the Assyrians, whom he sent down to destroy the northern kingdom. Those tribes have been lost to history, even to today. Meanwhile, the southern kingdom of Judah also has its history of ups and downs. They have 11 bad kings intersposed by eight good kings. Many of those bad kings are as bad as any that we see in the northern kingdom. And the precious few good kings that they have only stem the tide of disobedience in the southern kingdom for a time. And yet, despite the similarities between the north and the south, God deals very differently with the southern kingdom than he does with the northern kingdom. After 345 years, the Lord finally brings a consequence to the southern kingdom, similar to the one he brings to the north. The Lord delivers Judah and Benjamin into captivity at the hands, this time, of the invading Babylonian army under the authority of King Nebuchadnezzar. But unlike in the case of the northern kingdom, the Lord eventually restores the people in the southern kingdom to their land again, 70 years after that invasion by Nebuchadnezzar. So we can say that the Lord judged the northern kingdom, but he disciplined the southern kingdom. The story of how God disciplined Jerusalem and the southern kingdom plays out in a very interesting pattern of threes. Nebuchadnezzar's army attacks Jerusalem a total of three times. In the first attack, he assaults the leadership of the nation. The nation's ills were the direct result of their evil kings and many others in leadership and in the priesthood, in their corrupt will and in their faithlessness. And so it was the kings that were taken first. The king of the land and all of the noble class were taken in that first attack. And so God disciplines the people and does so by dealing first with their corrupt leadership. Nebuchadnezzar comes in in 605 B.C. That was the invasion, by the way, that resulted in Daniel being taken away because he was a nobleman of the, of the land at the time. Now, after a few years, Nebuchadnezzar's army returns again to put down a rebellion from among those in Israel who were left behind after the first attack. And in that second invasion in 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Israel's economic power. This time he took all the craftsmen and the teachers and the spiritual advisors and hauled all of them back to Babylon. Now Israel was without leadership and they were without economic vitality. Still, Israel would not submit to Nebuchadnezzar's rule, so they rebelled yet again. And we hear of the final act in this three-part destruction in Second Chronicles chapter 36, which happens to be the chapter immediately before the book of Ezra. So if you're already in Ezra, flip backwards one page or so and look at Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15. That's where we start reading. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. 
Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. So in verse 16 of Second Chronicles 36, we hear the words that really no one wants to hear from the Lord concerning their own sinfulness. The Lord declares there was no remedy. The sin of Israel had not diminished even after those two attacks earlier from Nebuchadnezzar and despite the collective voice of all the prophets. So the Lord brought the Babylonian army back again in 586 B.C. for one last devastating attack. That attack resulted in the city's entire population either being killed or leaving the city as slaves of Babylon. And, of course, the city itself was razed. It was destroyed. Nothing was left intact. Even the wall was torn down. And all the people who survived were led away. So the land was empty. This third attack brought to fulfillment the Lord's promise spoken through Jeremiah, in which he said he would punish Israel. And what followed was a period of captivity under Babylonian kings and later under Medo-Persian kings. The exact time of that captivity, as we hear from Jeremiah, was to be 70 years as God had promised. But as I said earlier, this is a period of discipline for Israel, which means the Lord always intended to restore the nation of the southern kingdoms in due time and specifically in 70 years. And just as the Lord took three steps to bring Israel into captivity as a part of his discipline, he also takes three steps to bring the nation back into fellowship with him. Those three steps of restoration are the studies that we are embarked on now in Ezra and Nehemiah. In the book of Ezra, we'll see the first two steps of that restoration, and the book of Nehemiah is the third step. Even more interesting, though, than the way he takes these three steps is the way these steps are arranged. They're arranged in a chiasm. You remember, if you've been in this class for a while, you remember what a chiasm is. So in the three things that happen to them during their destruction, he does the exact opposite in reverse order as he restores them. So the three steps of restoration mirror perfectly the three steps of judgment that he produces through Nebuchadnezzar. We'll come back later to that feature as we move through them. I'm not going to reveal the whole chiasm to you at once. We'll look at it in steps. Let's move to the book of first concern, though, our study of Ezra. Ezra is the name of the book. And ancient Jewish tradition maintains he is also the author of the book. In fact, Ezra is believed to have authored not only Ezra, but also Nehemiah and Chronicles, both first and second Chronicles. That would make sense when you look at how Chronicles flows naturally into Ezra and Ezra into Nehemiah. In fact, until the third century, Ezra and Nehemiah were a single book in both the Hebrew and the Christian scriptures. Today, Ezra and Nehemiah are still combined in a single work in the Hebrew scripture. Ezra, the man, was a scribe in Israel. Scribes were the literary class of the nation. They were responsible for guarding the word of God, teaching it, 
for writing commentary or instructions concerning the law. And as we're going to see in Ezra's case, they were also often the historians in the culture. Not much is known about him apart from what's recorded in the books that he wrote. He was, we know, a contemporary of Nehemiah. And the Talmud actually claims that Ezra was a student of Baruch, who was Jeremiah's teacher. So based on historical references in the book, Ezra was probably born in Babylon during captivity and then later came out with the exiles. The book itself has a very interesting timeline, as I was just alluding to a minute ago, because it focuses on two very different periods in history. Chapters one through six of Ezra focus on Cyrus, who is the king of Medo-Persia that permits Israel to return to the land. And then the second part of the book, beginning in chapter seven, deals with Ezra and his movement into Jerusalem, his exile. And the time between those two uh, periods, there's a gap of 100 years. So between chapter 6 and chapter 7, 100 years are unaccounted for in the history of Ezra. In that 100-year gap, you find the story of Esther taking place. Esther is ruling as queen in Persia during the period between when Cyrus gave the edict to allow Israel to go home but before Ezra and Nehemiah actually get there. So there's a hundred year period there in which Israel is still working to reestablish itself in Jerusalem. Perhaps Ezra gives chapters one through six as a historical background, and then his own personal account begins in chapter seven. But whatever the case is, Ezra and Nehemiah record the final historical events of the Old Testament, chronologically. The only prophet to write after Nehemiah is Malachi. And Matthew is the next historical work in the Bible. So after the book of Nehemiah, the next thing recorded historically, chronologically, is what you read in Matthew. So let's start our study of Ezra with that background. So let's start our study of Ezra looking at the first step of Israel's restoration, which repeats the final two verses of Chronicles. So if you are still looking at Chronicles, if you study the last two verses of Chronicles, they will be repeated in the first four verses of Ezra. So we'll start in Ezra, verses 1 through 4. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So after 70 years of captivity, the Lord moves as he promised, to bring Israel back into the land. Previously, the Lord had promised that there was still much he intended to do if God had made promises through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, into the time of David. He said he would restore Israel in their land someday in peace, and he would raise up a Davidic king to rule them in righteousness, and he would lead them in their land and heal their land. All of these things are promises that were still outstanding for Israel, still to be fulfilled. So it's inevitable that God is going to have to restore his people if he is to keep his promises. 
But in the course of making all that happen, the Lord also has to reinforce central truths of who he is and who we are. And a repentant heart is one of those essential truths. A repentant heart is an essential requirement to receiving the Lord's mercy. And so the means of restoration that the Lord is choosing to bring Israel back into the land is one designed to produce and expose a repentant heart within the people. So as Israel humbles itself, the Lord is going to respond with each step of this restoration process. Here you see the first of that process. Cyrus, the king of Persia. He becomes an instrument of God to fulfill the words of Jeremiah, we're told. And those words are specifically found in either Jeremiah 25 or Jeremiah 29. I prefer 29. 29, 10 through 13 says this. This is Jeremiah speaking. He says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. The Medo-Persians defeated the Babylonians during the period when Israel was still in captivity. They're the second power represented in the statue of Daniel chapter 2. So there's a power transition that takes place while Israel's in captivity. So one day they're captives of Babylon. Next day they wake up, they're captives of Medo-Persia. And that king, the first king of that period of time over Israel, is a king called Cyrus. And as we see, he's the man God uses to release them. Isaiah even names him specifically in Isaiah 44 as the one who would one day come and fulfill Jeremiah's word. Isaiah 44:26 says, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers, it is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depths of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundations will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings and to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. Now, if you want any better proof that prophecy is of God, Isaiah names Cyrus 200 years before he's born and credits him with being the king who would declare return and build your cities, return and build the temple. Clearly, the the Lord is working to accomplish something important here, and he's so concerned with the details that he's even announced his plans in advance to the point even of naming the man who would do it. So when the time comes for the Lord to keep his promise in Jeremiah through Cyrus, he begins to move. And in verse one, we hear the Lord stirs up the spirit of Cyrus so that Cyrus will issue this edict. Cyrus, we can safely assume, had no personal interest in freeing the Jews. In other words, apart from this stirring, there'd have been no reason to expect him to do such a thing. This is evidence that Cyrus may have been made aware of the prophecy in Isaiah, perhaps by Daniel, who was serving in that court. So through what he read in Isaiah, Cyrus himself may have come to understand he was to be the fulfillment of what God had written. This is a clear example of the Lord's sovereignty, not only in his capacity to foretell events, but in his capacity to direct men's hearts 
as he wills in response to certain things, to events. In fact, in verse 2, Cyrus gives the Lord credit for his decision. You notice he says, the Lord has made him ruler for a time and the Lord has commanded him to permit the Jews to go to Jerusalem and to build a house for the Lord. And of course, that means the temple. This all put together may explain why the Lord did something so out of keeping with his normal practice when he named Cyrus. You know, it's not unusual for the Lord to make prophecy known, but to put the name of that future person in the text is very unusual. Perhaps it was so that when Cyrus read his own name written in Scripture 200 years before he was born, then he would have no doubt as to its source and would be that much more compelled to go forward with what God expected. Cyrus's edict comes in the first year that he serves as king over Babylon, and it contains some interesting details, this edict. For example, repeatedly he refers to the Lord as the God of Israel, and he acknowledges he lives in Jerusalem and so on. But it's also clear that Cyrus does not understand that the Lord is the one and only God. In fact, Isaiah goes on, if you read all the way into chapter 45, Isaiah makes very clear that Cyrus is not a believer. So what do we take of that? Well, it just proves that the Lord can use anyone to suit his purposes. That does not require that he reveal himself truly and fully to someone in order to encourage or lead that one to do what he wishes. The offer that Cyrus makes is that any among Israel who wish to journey back to Jerusalem are now free to do so. Every survivor of Israel is is invited to leave. And he says, no matter where you live, and what he means is, no matter what place you have in society, whether you are a member of the king's court, whether you are a laborer, whether you are a criminal serving in prison, everyone, no matter who you are, where you are, is free to go back if you wish. No one who wishes to serve God is barred. Secondly, he orders that any of the Jews' neighbors who don't go are to give financial support to those who do go. They are to receive silver, gold, etc. They are also to receive a free will offering. And all of these gifts are used to support the rebuilding of the temple. Does this start to remind you of a similar situation from Israel's past? Reminds us of the last time that a captive Israel is released with a command to go and build a house to the Lord. After they departed Egypt, remember, they leave with the riches of that nation as well. And those riches funded the construction of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And in the same way, these gifts are going to fund the building of the temple. It's a reminder that those whom God calls, he equips for the work that he has appointed for them. No true work of God has ever failed for lack of funding. So then Ezra reports how the nation responds to the king's edict. Verses 5 through 11. Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose. Even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle and with valuables, aside from all that was given as a free will offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Shishbazar, the prince of Judah. Now, this was their number, 30 gold dishes, a thousand silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and a thousand other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Shesbazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. You might imagine every Jew who had the chance to leave would have just jumped up and fled, just like the generation that left Egypt, right? But in reality, only a remnant chose to return. Ezra says, The heads of the households of Judah and Benjamin and Levi arose. Now, there's only these three tribes in captivity. That's the three that were in the southern kingdom. 
The rest had been taken earlier. But in reality, most of Israel taken into captivity chose to remain behind in Medo-Persia. You can kind of understand that decision from a human perspective when you remember that they've spent most of their lives or maybe all of their lives living in this place. This is home. All of their possessions are there. All their connections to the world are there. When you think about what's waiting for them in Jerusalem, there's nothing there. It's not like there's even a little settlement left there. It's bare, desolate land. And so repatriating the land is going to be a difficult and a hard life for anyone who goes. So most stayed put. In verse 5, we learn why some decide to go. Those, we're told, whose hearts were stirred by the Lord. The same phrase used is what was used a minute earlier for Cyrus. God has determined, it appears, that certain members of Israel would return and serve him there, and he prompts them to go. Once again, we see the Lord moving according to his will in prompting the steps of men. And it was the Lord's determination that made the difference between who went and who stayed. If you were stirred by the Lord's spirit, you went to rebuild the temple. If your heart was not directed by the Lord in that way, you stayed. Those who stayed behind still served a purpose by funding the trip, for one, of course, and by representing Israel outside the land. Not only did the Jews give donations, we're told, but also the Gentiles, and in particular Cyrus. He brings articles of value. And what he really brings of most interest, of course, is he brings all the stolen articles that have been taken and robbed out of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. And he restores them so they can be taken back into the land. When one nation conquered another nation in this period of history, it was customary for the conquering force to carry away images of the defeated gods from the nation that they conquered. And then those idols would be displayed back home as a testimony that these gods were impotent in the face of this conquering army. But Israel had no images of God because they were prohibited from having images of God in the Ten Commandments. So Nebuchadnezzar, you can imagine this guy is kind of perplexed at the whole problem, right? He's coming to the temple looking for the face of the God he wants to show off that he destroyed. He can't find him. So instead he takes a bunch of dishware. So he takes all the temple utensils, he takes some other artifacts. The effect of all of this, though, ironically, is it served to preserve those things now for the people who have to return and set up for service again in the temple. And then we see this inventory taken of what was returned, and the count is substantial. Not only is it just considerable wealth because of the value of it, the gold and the silver, but Israel didn't have to go to the effort to devote other wealth to the recreating of all of these artifacts for the sake of the temple. In other words, that's a lot of money they'd have to have come up with if they had had to produce all of this material. The inventory lists thousands and thousands of gold and silver objects. Ezra says the total is 5,400, but if you add up all the numbers, it doesn't equal that. It's likely because in those earlier counts, he's just highlighting some of the major artifacts, but there's a bunch of other smaller stuff, and altogether it was 5,400. In any case, one item is conspicuously absent, the Ark of the Covenant. There is no evidence that Babylon held on to this object. Most scholars assume Nebuchadnezzar just destroyed it for its gold. And as we clearly see here, it's never returned to Israel. In fact, Josephus wrote that the second temple, which is what they're about to go build, never contained the Ark in the Holy of Holies. According to tradition, only a rock was placed in its position. The rock was called the foundation stone, interestingly. Finally, chapter 1 ends with this important turning point in Israel's history. Ezra says the exiles went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Once again, Israel is returning to the place God has given them. In fact, when you skim over this first chapter, 
we all have already noticed this, but it's easy to see a strong parallel to Exodus. I mean, first of all, we already made the comparison to them taking Egypt's wealth. Now they're taking wealth from Medo-Persia. But there are all these other references that it would appear Ezra has intentionally dropped in this first chapter so that we can make this comparison ourselves. There's Judah mentioned, Benjamin, the Levites. These are all names that reference us back to the story of Joseph and how they even came into Egypt in the first place. There's all of the references to the Lord's sovereignty and his providence. That's another strong storyline in the story of Exodus. And then you have this intention to fulfill promises through Gentile rulers, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, as it was Pharaoh back in that day. Once again, the Lord is moving to bring Israel to himself in keeping with his promises. Now, in the next chapter, Ezra is going to list the 50,000 people or so who actually make this trip. Just in case you're worried, they're not actually all 50,000 listed here. But it's going to feel like it when I get through the list. <laughs> Let's begin, though, with verse 1. Now, these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. Out of the millions of Jews who entered the land under Joshua and the millions who were likely killed and taken, in most cases, to Nebuchadnezzar's conquest, only 50,000 are going back into the land. Only 50,000. This is proof of a basic principle of Old Testament theology. True Israel has always been only a remnant in her own nation. While a large number may call themselves Israel at any given time, only a small number are the saints who know him truly. Here is one rare moment when the difference is relatively easy to see. Only those stirred by God's spirit return. Now, I'm not saying that only those who left were believing and all that remained behind were unbelieving. We know that there are some true believers of Israel who stayed behind. The story of Esther tells us of what happens to some of those believing Jews who stayed outside the land and there are likely others as well. And still more join later in the land. They don't come in the first wave. They come in later waves. Still, though, the vast majority of Israel, we think, remains behind. And as a result, they eventually cease to be Israel for the most part. When these exiles return, they take a route that is almost exactly the same as the one Abraham took when he first entered the land. They travel from Babylon northeast to Aleppo or present-day Damascus. Then they travel southward into Judea and to Jerusalem. This was the only way to make that kind of a trip. That's why we call it the Fertile Crescent, because to walk directly east to west would take you across a desert that is literally uncrossable. Most of the rest of this chapter consists of the count of those who left for Jerusalem. It forms a genealogy, and as such, it demonstrates that the nation has not lost its identity during the years of captivity. It is a long list. The names are unfamiliar. They're going to be difficult to pronounce in a few cases. But since this is verse-by-verse verse ministry, we don't shy away from long lists of odd names. So let's read the list. I will tell you that you will have to hear this list twice because it is repeated in its entirety in Nehemiah 7. Ezra 2, verse 2. These came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sarariah. Reeliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvai, Rehum, Bana, the number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parush, 2,172, the sons of Shephatiah, 372, the sons of Arah, 775, the sons of Pahath Moab, of the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812, the sons of Elam, 
1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zechai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. The sons of Bebei, 623. The sons of Asgad, 1,222. The sons of Adonikam, 666. That's not a family you want to be a part of. The sons of Big Vai, 2056. The sons of Adin, 454. The sons of Eter of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bezi, 323. The sons of Jarrah, 112. The sons of Hashum, 223. The sons of Gibar, 95. The men of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Netophath, 56. The men of Anatoth, Anatoth? Anatoth. Sounds like I have a lisp. 128. The sons of Asmaveth, 42. The sons of Kiriath, Arim, Shephirah, and Beeroth, 743. The sons of Ramah and Gibah, 621. The men of Mikamas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 223. The sons of Nebo, 52. The sons of Magbish, 156. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. How would you like to be known as the other Elam? The sons of Harim, 320. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Onan, 725. The men of Jericho, 345. The sons of Senanah, 3,630. The priests, the son of Jedediah, of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Emer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Kadmiel, of the sons of Hedoviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atter, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hadatah, the sons of Shobai, in all 139. The temple servants, the son of Ziha, the sons of Hashufa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Kiros, and the sons of Siaha, and the sons of Peron. The sons of Lebanah, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Rehiyam, Rehiyah, sorry, not that you care, the sons of Rezim, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasiah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nephisim, the sons of Bakbub, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhum, the sons of Bazuluth, the sons of Mehida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barcos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Temam, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasophiref, the sons of Perula, the sons of Jahala, the sons of Darkan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokereth, Hazabaim, the sons of Ami. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. All right, well, you may have noticed at least a couple of familiar names in that list as we read through it. Names like Nehemiah, Mordecai. If you think you see a name that, oh, that must be so-and-so, well, you're wrong. Because these men are not the same men who bear the names we know so well from Scripture elsewhere. Because, for example, in the book of Nehemiah, is about a man who doesn't even enter Jerusalem for another hundred years after this moment. So he's not even alive, more than likely, during this moment. And the Mordecai of Esther remained in Susa in the Persian Empire. So he's not going to be one of the guys who goes into Jerusalem and so on. So why do we have this long list? Well, the purpose and the importance of the list is to establish 
that these returning families could justifiably lay claim to being the same Israel that left 70 years earlier. Each family is listed, as you know, either by, as you may have noticed, either by the sons of someone or the men of somewhere. So you're either the sons of a person or you're men from a certain place. These were the only two ways that a person in Israel could prove that they could lay claim to being eligible to return. Either you could trace your family back to a father who was taken from Israel by Nebuchadnezzar, or you demonstrated that you owned land in the former Judea. As I said, this list repeated in, in Nehemiah 7. If you were to look over there at some point, you'll notice that Ezra records different numbers next to a good number of these names. And in most cases, the numbers are larger in Nehemiah than they are here, although in a few cases they're smaller. Why is that? Of course, that gets people debating right from the start about the accuracy of Scripture and so on and so forth. Well, remember the first list, the one we just read, was done a hundred years before the one that we'll read in Nehemiah. Ezra wrote both these books, but what he's writing in chapter 2 is what is history to him. What he'll write in Nehemiah 7 is what he himself counted when he was there in the moment as the scribe. In the second list, you're likely looking at an updated count based on how many sons existed in each family at that point relative to what was in existence when they left the land. And most families increased and a few may have decreased for various reasons, but it's an updated census compared to the one that had been taken 100 years earlier. We'll look at that again when we get to Nehemiah 7. In the list, you also see a division of families based on role. For example, there's the priestly families. And of the original 24 divisions of the priesthood that David created, there are only four represented in this list. But nearly 9% of all of the returnees are priests. So that would have been more than enough to serve the needs of the people, even with just those few divisions. Other Levites, that is, those of the clan of Levi that were not priests, were also included. In the early days before the captivity, you had a lot more Levites who weren't priests than you did who were. Now it's the other way around. And then you also see temple servants and another group of Israelites David established to assist the priests. And then you have Solomon's servants who he also established to assist in the temple. So you have all these extra hanger honors who are going to help in the temple. And then we have another group of dubious origins who try to crash the party in verses 59 through 63. Ezra writes, Now these are those who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adan, and Emir, but they were not able to give evidence of their father's households and their descendants, whether they were of Israel. The sons of Delaliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652. Of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habaiah, the sons of Hakoz, the sons of Barzillaiah, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillaiah the Gideite, and he was called by their name. These searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. The governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest stood up with the Urim and Thummim. All right, so the group of families you see here, these groups applied to go down to Israel, but they were rejected by the leadership because they couldn't demonstrate that their family heritage traced back to Israel. And the importance of this little moment in the story is to demonstrate two important details for the record of Israel. First, it gives evidence of something that is commonly assumed everywhere else you go in Scripture. 
which is that the Jews were meticulous record keepers when it came to genealogies. We see Matthew's gospel opening with one, and Luke, of course, has one. The point of genealogies in Israel's existence was central to the promises of God because the nation was formed by God on the basis of a birthright relationship and a covenant promise that was transferred through that birthright. And in tracing genealogies, you you find this essential aspect of Jewish life and even of theology and of their history, because if they're to show God is faithful to his promise, they want to show clearly that he worked only through this one group of people in doing what he said he would do to the exclusion of all others and particularly to their enemies. It's one of the main tools that the Lord has used over the millennia to protect the integrity of his promise and his people, that genealogies remain pure and that the nature of these people, their very personalities, were to be meticulous on these things. And it also goes to show that you can trust the antiquity of Scripture because those he entrusted to write it and to keep it were also the same Jews who were so meticulous over their genealogies. The second thing this example teaches us is it confirms that the exile nation continued to maintain its identity while it was in exile, including continuing to maintain records of birth and of land ownership. The nation has been preserved in exile. The records have been preserved. All of this has been done to ensure that their identity isn't lost so that when a group tries to invade their party, like this group did, they are able to discriminate who is who. There is no other group of humanity in all human history that have maintained their identity in this way to this degree when outside their land. It's a unique anthropological artifact of Israel that they've been able to do this. Proof of God at work. And then in verses 61 through 63, this group, the second group, beginning in verses 61 through 63, they can demonstrate that they're Jewish. That's not the concern. They're applying to be considered part of the priesthood, which is a whole other thing on top of that. But once again, they can't show they're eligible to be priests. Now, in this case, the group's allowed to return because we know they're Jewish, but they're prohibited from participating in the temple service like priests would until, it says, the high priest stands up with the ermine and thuman. And then we'll know the truth. And what he's referring to is something we learned in our Exodus study. Remember in Exodus, we, re- we learned about these two objects, these two stones. They were on the breastplate of the high priest. And when the high priest had a question that he needed to take to God for an answer, he would take the question in the form of a yes or no question. And then these two stones, in some way we don't quite understand, would divine the answer from God for the high priest. So he would say, are these people... Part of the priesthood and the Uman and Thurman would come back with an answer from God, literally. And so they're saying, we won't know yet until we ask God. Let's wait till we get the priesthood set up, the temple set up, everything running. And then we'll know whether you guys are truly priests or not. Meanwhile, you can come back. And then lastly for tonight, Ezra records the wealth of this group and the diversity of life that immigrated from Persia in verses 64 through 70. He says, the whole assembly numbered 42,360. Besides their male and female servants who numbered 7,337, and they had 200 singing men and women. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their donkeys 6,720. Some of the heads of the father's households when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered willingly for the house of God to restore it on its foundation. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas and 5,000 silver minas and 100 priestly garments. Now the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their cities and all Israel in their cities.
So the whole assembly, as we said earlier, men, women, children, servants, entertainers, were 50,000, just under 50,000. That's a large group when you think of you know, traveling somewhere, but it's a relatively small group when you're talking about repatriating a desolate land. By comparison, the last time they came in to occupy this land, they had millions. And this time, you're not going to have enough people to guarantee victories over warring opponents, apart from the power of God, of course. But my point is, on a human level, you look vulnerable, you feel vulnerable. The work of building is going to be harder with fewer to do the work. Everybody's going to be more challenged by the circumstances. And as they leave, we hear that they arrive. And as they arrive, they immediately go to the Temple Mount. And they could not have been much there for them. I mean, it must have been a fairly underwhelming sight. These people have never laid eyes on it for the most part. I can't imagine we have too many people in this group who actually left the land originally, though it could be true that some were. So there's little left to see on the land. And they had been sent specifically to rebuild it. And they're looking at what must have been a daunting task. It was probably a very emotional moment to come back and see what was left of the temple. And in the face of that emotion and of the recognition of what was in front of them, we hear the heads of some of the families begin willingly offering on the spot to give some of their possessions to make it possible for them to complete this building. So they create a treasury, and the treasury swells to a fortune here as a result of their largesse. The drachma, which was an equivalent to the denarius later, it, in both cases they, they're roughly equivalent to one day's wage for your average working laborer. So if you take 61,000 gold coins, that represents 167 years of wages. And if we assume a working man earns, let's say, about $50,000 in our day, then in our day's dollars, this is $8 million that just got deposited into the treasury in a matter of moments from 50,000 people, stirred by the sight of a temple mount with no temple. Clearly they're moved, and clearly they have hearts to do what is required. So as our first lesson ends... What do we find? Uh, we find a small contingent of remnant believers in Israel settling, it says, into their cities, into their towns, working, living, and preparing to rebuild. The work of rebuilding of the temple hasn't even started yet. In fact, it will be another seven months before they even set their mind at the building of the temple. They spend their first seven months doing what you and I would naturally do if you showed up in the middle of nowhere. You need a house. You need a way to make food come about, you've got to start working on your everyday life. That's where they spend their time. And it will take them many, many years to complete the building. So step one of the restoration has just begun. And we'll end our study with that tonight. Thank you, Father, for uh, helping us get through the start of a study. It's, uh, it's always exciting to begin a study, Father, but it's always as well a bit uh, challenging to get our hearts and minds into the study of something. And we pray, Father, you continue to pull us through this all the way to the end, showing us all that you have prepared. We pray, Father, you give us a few more to join us so that we might share what we learn with others and make the most opportunity uh, of this opportunity in this room. And we mostly, Father, ask that you'd show us the lessons we can learn from this so that we can uh, learn how to follow you more truly and honor you in our service. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.